You're listening to Life in Deep Ellum's podcast. Well, my name's Rachel, if I haven't met you guys before, and we are continuing in our series, Weird Stories. And we're not going back to Moses. We are pushing on. We're going to be talking about the story of Ruth, but Ruth is actually connected to the giving of the law. So more on that later. Um, But I wanted to warn you guys ahead of time, you are getting Professor Triska again this morning, as opposed to normal Rachel. Um, I even brought my whiteboard with me. So we are are fully prepared. And the book of Ruth, I don't know how many of you have actually read it, if you just read it and you don't do a whole, whole lot of study around it, it seems like a very straightforward kind of love story. Um, And I wanted to, it it is on one level, but I wanted us to go a little deeper with it this morning. But I was thinking a lot around like the idea of stories and how stories work. And I happened to hear something and I thought, oh, this is great, I want to share it with you. So we're actually going to start with little Kurt Vonnegut this morning. Are you guys... Good with that, author Kurt Vonnegut. How many of you are familiar with his Shape of Stories teaching? Anybody? Okay, yes. <sighs> Love it. I knew there would be a few. I was like, there's no way we can do this at Life and Deep Elm and there not be a couple. So Kurt Vonnegut taught on like the shape of stories. What are some, some typical shapes of stories? And so he, the first axis, he has good fortune and ill fortune. That looks like an F. Here we go, ill fortune. So that's the first axis of a story. And then the second axis, you start somewhere right here in the middle, and you've got B to E, which when I first heard him teach this, I was like, B to E, beginning to end. It's, you know, not revolutionary. Ah, there we go. (laughs) And so he talks about a couple of, like, typical kinds of forms of stories. And so one he calls a man in a hole. So you start out here, and this is like, you know, life is just what it is, and he goes along for a minute, and then something terrible happens, and he ends up down here. Something happens that changes his fortune. He goes up here, and he ends up somewhere and with a degree of happiness at the end of time. Well, the typical boy meets girl story goes more like this. This young man, young woman starts off, life is good. They meet someone, and suddenly life is so much better than it was. And then something happens which takes this person out of their life. (gasps) But it's okay because they're going to end up together, and you end up with a degree of happiness because you're on the good fortune end of the spectrum. But then he said, there's this one form of story, and to use his words, he said, every time someone writes this story, you can make another million dollars. I was like, I'm listening. Tell me how we do this. And so he tells the story. He says, the thing that's different about this one is it starts down here with really bad fortune. So you've got a girl whose father dies. She has two really evil stepsisters, terrible stepmother. And life is just kind of awful, but then you have a fairy godmother who arrives. And she gives her some mascara and a new dress and a coach and, you know, just stair steps her all the way up to where she gets to attend the ball. And she meets the prince and they dance. And then the clock strikes 12 and she just falls tick by tick by tick by tick but not all the way to the bottom because she will always have that memory of the night with the prince. But then the prince comes in search of her and when he finds her, she shoots all the way up to here, infinite happiness forever. It was like, that's the story that people want to hear. Well, happening to hear this, and he was actually a much better artist than me, that's pretty bad, but When I was reading the story of Ruth, I was like, man, minus the evil stepmother and evil stepsisters, Ruth may have been the original Cinderella story. But there's no magic in Cinderella. Instead, what we find, the stair steps that move her from ill fortune to good fortune, is it magic? It's something the Jewish people would have called hesed, loving kindness. There is this loving kindness that moves her from ill fortune to good fortune. One person described the tale of Ruth as how ordinary people with mixed motives become extraordinary through the cultivation of loving kindness. 
So no magic in this story, but a lot of loving kindness, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. So we're going to look at quite a bit of scripture. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like to borrow one of ours, we do encourage people to interact with the scripture on at least a weekly basis when you come and hang out with us. So if you don't have a Bible with you this morning or an electronic format you're comfortable using, if you'll raise your hand, one of our ushers will bring one to you. So how many of you guys remember the last time we actually talked about Hesed a little bit? Do you guys remember that? Whenever we talked about Rahab and her being like this beautiful example of what loving kindness was. But one of the things that we didn't really talk about, some of the aspects of this loving kindness that we didn't get into, is that in Scripture we see that loving kindness has some certain criteria that are with it. Loving kindness is contagious. Loving kindness is transformative. And loving kindness is often unmerited. It comes from this place of just generosity. And you're going to see throughout the story of Ruth how this loving kindness, this mercy, is contagious and transformative and generous. So be on the lookout whenever we finally get there. But what I love about it is as you look at it, if you wanted to kind of summarize, summarize the way this loving kindness and mercy works, is it's a kind of action that provokes good from others. And so it's just, it sets off this chain reaction, and you have one person adding good to the world that then inspires another person to add good to the world, that then inspires another person to add good to the world, and it just keeps rippling out further and further. Several years ago, I was at a stoplight over at um, Buckner and Garland. And the girls and I were just sitting there, and I'm watching like this little old couple crossing the road. Some of you have heard me tell this story before. So they're crossing the road, and they're, they're very elderly, and they don't make it before the light changes. And so there's this one red sports car that just like peels out around them and like, I mean, you're just, you're like, I cannot believe that jerk because he just is like speeding around this sweet little couple. Well, then this lady gets out of her car. She like parks her car. She's supposed to be moving. She totally parks her car, gets out, dressed very nice, very distinguished looking middle-aged lady. And she walks over and she stands and just walks the sweet little couple across the road. Well, then you have these two big trucks that like block the other side of the intersection. And we're all just watching this moment of incredible dignity being offered and loving kindness and you know like the rest of us who couldn't do anything are just like sitting in our cars crying going I want to be a better human being today <laughs> and that's kind of what Hassad is you see it and you go yeah that is in all of us none of us want to be the jerk in the red car I want to be that person that kind of human being and that's what God calls out of all of us Sometimes we make it too simple. We say God just wants us to love. Love, when you look at it in Scripture, is not just this attitude of your heart. It is love in action. It's love that requires something of us. And it's most often, this idea of hesed, of loving kindness, of mercy, when you read it in the Old Testament, it's most often attributed to God. So you get passages like Psalms 23 that says, Surely your goodness and hesed, your love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That that kind of loving kindness in action, Scripture tells us that God is pursuing you with that, even when it doesn't feel like it. Psalms 103, 8 through 12 says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in his said. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his said for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And scripture is just full of that kind of language about how God interacts with his people. And when we read that, we're like, yeah, life is sounding pretty good, right? It's like encouraging. But then you keep reading and you realize God doesn't just do that with us. That's what he calls us to be in this world. And so you get passages like Zechariah 7, 9 through 10 that says, the Lord, this is what the Lord Almighty said, administer true justice, show hesed, mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless or the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against one another. Micah 6, 8 says, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. 
And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love has said, yeah, to has said, oh no, wait, sorry. To love, it gets confusing because love is translated, or has said is most often translated as love. And so if you read it this way, it would say to love, love. But he translated it to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. So we don't get off the hook with this whole hesed thing. This is one of those things where it is great to receive it, but we're also expected to give it to others. And that's why it's transformative and contagious. So in the Old Testament... We have this story of a woman, Ruth, who's a Moabitess, and she experiences this and offers it. So it's a story of the giving and the receiving of Hesed. So I want to give you guys a little bit of background for the historical context of the book of Ruth, because it's going to make this all more meaningful. So this is where I'm going to put on my professor hat, and we're going to take a little bit of a deep dive into the historical context around Ruth. You guys ready for it? Excellent. And if you get really excited in this part, feel free to give me some amens. <laughs> so the story around Ruth, the question at the heart of the book of Ruth is what does Hesed require of us? What does God want of his people? So let me explain. There's two theories around when the book of Ruth was written. The first one is that Ruth was written probably the 8th or 7th century BC, and it was written in order to, to kind of defend David's kingship because David was the great grandson of Ruth who was a Moabitess, and according to certain laws in the Old Testament, he shouldn't have been allowed to be in the congregation of the people of God. Technically, according to Deuteronomy, he should have been excluded. And so they, there's this idea of, well, they had to write the book of Ruth so that they could justify his inclusion and then justify his kingship, which, you know, depending on which dating you go with, it's, it's reasonable. That's an absolutely acceptable understanding of how and why Ruth was written. The more likely theory, in my humble opinion, mostly given some of the archaic, like some of the language, it's old Hebrew and blah, blah, blah. I won't bore you guys. Um, I think that it was more likely that it was written in post-exilic times. So what this means is most likely it was written in the 4th century BCE. This means it was written at the same time as Ezra and Nehemiah. Why does that matter? Are you guys familiar with the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah? Well, Ezra and Nehemiah were two leaders in the country of Israel, but they had, been, they had been in exile in Babylon and Assyria. And so they're given permission. They come back. They're going to rebuild Jerusalem. They're going to rebuild the temple. And they are very zealous for the law. I mean, they, there's these passages in Ezra and Nehemiah where you just see all of God's people gathering. And they read the law for days and days and days. And so Ezra and Nehemiah, very excited about this, mostly because they're like, man, it's because of our idolatry that we got sent into exile. We don't want to do that again. So we've got to make sure we are following everything to the letter of the law, which means when you get to the end of Ezra and Nehemiah, you have Ezra saying, every man who is married to a foreign woman must divorce her and even send away the children from their marriage. And so when you read Ezra, it's just like, and everybody agrees, and they do what Ezra says. And you're like, really? I, I feel like, you know, it has this one little verse in Ezra 10.15 that lists the people who opposed it. But other than that, the impression is just like, all these men were really cool with divorcing their wives and sending their children away. So I went and read Nehemiah, because they're two separate books. And I wanted to know, like, what did Nehemiah say about this? So if you want to look with me, we're going to read a little bit of Nehemiah's account of how this went down. So Nehemiah 13, 23. And it says, moreover, this is Nehemiah speaking, moreover in those days I saw men of Judah who married women from Ashad, Ammon, and Moab, 
Half of their children spoke the language of Ashad or the language of the other people and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called down curses on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in, the name, in God's name and said, you are not to give your sons or daughters in marriage, nor take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? And it goes on and on. And then it says, must we hear that you too are doing these terrible things? And then in verse 28, it talks about him banishing someone. And I'm like, oh, this makes more sense now. Nehemiah tortured people. This is why the men were finally convinced to send their wives away, as they were beaten, and they were cursed, and they were forced into oaths, and they had their hair pulled out. I was like, oh, okay, like that, that actually makes more sense to me now. A little uncomfortable, but it makes more sense. So it's interesting if you think about the book of Ruth being written at the same time as Ezra and Nehemiah. Because what you have is Ezra and Nehemiah represented a majority view in that time. That the way forward, the way to truly honor God was to exclude all foreigners at all costs. But you had these people who were a minority opinion, who said, no, there is space in the kingdom of God for these people to belong. And so you had these two views that are held in tension that are both represented in the Old Testament. And the story of Ruth is someone stopping and going, hey, wait, we actually have an example in our history of when someone took a Moabitess woman into the people of God and how that worked out. And it actually worked out really well. So maybe we should consider that. And that's where we get the story of Ruth. Now, I want to pause right here and talk a little bit about Old Testament hermeneutics. Because one of the things I love about the Old Testament, and you've probably picked it up on in how I've taught the Old Testament over the last several weeks, is that when you're reading the Old Testament, there's this beautiful tension that's often preserved in Scripture. You have like one source who's saying this, and you have another source who's saying something else, and they disagree with one another, but they're both included. So an example of this that's relevant to our conversations from Deuteronomy 23 and Deuteronomy 2. In Deuteronomy 23, the Moabites and the Ammonites, they're excluded because the children of Israel did not get food or water from them when they were leaving Egypt. Well, if you read Deuteronomy 2, 28 through 29, it says that they actually did provide, supply, food and water to the children of Israel as they were leaving, leaving Egypt. Which account is correct? Well, it was 1,600 years before the writing of that book, so they didn't know, so they included them both. And that's not the only place where we have this in Scripture. You know, I talked you through the Deuteronomy 7 versus Joshua 2, not so, just a couple of weeks ago. We have lots of examples in Scripture where they're like, I don't know. Our approach is to tell you both and then let the text wrestle with itself. And so when you read the Old Testament, you don't have the luxury of just reading it and going, thus saith the Lord, blah, 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 and then go, I understand now. You have to actually read it all of it, deal with all of it, because what you find is the text is wrestling with itself and you are invited to into that process. What I love is that to be an Israelite, you know, you had Jacob, whose name was turned to Israel because he wrestled with God. And that's what it means to be a part of the people of God or to be a people who can wrestle with our understandings of God, can engage him that deeply. That, to me, is a way more fun way to read the Old Testament, right? I don't know about you guys. It makes me actually care what Leviticus says. <laughs> so, whenever we're looking at Ezra, Nehemiah, Ruth, what we end up with are two views, and we'll call them belonging and exclusion. And they are both based on Scripture. Both are based on scripture. The camp that was arguing for the belonging of the foreigners 
They were based on scriptures like Leviticus 19.34 that says, The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as you love yourself. For you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Passages like Deuteronomy 10.19 that says, And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves are foreigners. There's a passage from Isaiah 56 that we talked about where Isaiah sees this day when the foreigner is absolutely included within the people of God and there is a place for them in the temple. Because he says the, the Lord's house will be a house of prayer for all peoples. Now, on the exclusionary side, there were passages too, like the one from Deuteronomy 23 that I mentioned. And there were passages like Exodus 34:16 and Joshua 23:12 through 13. And they all make the same argument. Look, you Israelites, you can't marry these foreign people and associate with them because they are going to lead you into idolatry. And that's bad. That's why we ended up in exile to begin with, so don't do that. And those texts exist side by side, sometimes in the same book. And the expectation of God's people is that they would wrestle with it and seek the God who is speaking through Scripture to see what he had to say for their people. So that's the backdrop for the book of Ruth. This division among the people of God over who belongs and who doesn't. And that's the context that Ruth was written into. And this writer wanted to remind God's people that there was a Moabitess who was the great-grandmother of the greatest king of Israel. Imagine if she had been excluded. So, you've got the background. Let's actually talk about the story of Ruth. If you've never read it, I do highly recommend it. It's only four chapters, so it's not a long read. You can read it beginning to end pretty quickly. We're going to see how I do telling you guys a story because um, it's like two full pages of my notes, so hang with me, okay? You guys ready? Story time with Rachel Triska. So chapter one. Chapter one, I'm going to call it a portrait of devotion. So remember, we're on the Cinderella track. So we start off with Naomi and her husband and her two sons fleeing Bethlehem, going into Moab because there's this great famine in the land of Israel, or Judah, the land of Judah. And so they end up in Moab. Shortly after that, Naomi's husband dies. And then her sons do what the Israelites are not supposed to do and marry foreign women. So she has these two Moabite daughter-in-laws, and then her sons, whose names are, if you were to translate them into English, would be sickness and death, <laughs> die. And Naomi is like, my life kind of is not so good right now. Well, thankfully, she gets a little bit of good news. The famine in Judah is over, so she can go home. And both of her daughter-in-law set out with her from Moab going into Bethlehem, which translated means house of bread, which is fun in the context of talking about famine. So they go, and somewhere along the way, Naomi stops the daughter-in-laws and says, hey, this is crazy for you to go with me. My people don't like, she didn't say this, but you know, this is, this is my version. My people don't like Moabites. It's not going to probably be all that great for you. So you sh you've shown me so much kindness, has said. You've shown me so much kindness. I want security for you. I want a husband for you. So just go back home to your mother's house. Like, you will do fine. Stay in Moab. And the daughter-in-laws are like, no, we can't leave you. We love you. And every mother-in-law in the room is like, where is that daughter-in-law? <laughs> Finally, Ruth is able to convince one of the daughter-in-laws to go. And so she goes back home, but Ruth won't. I mean, Ruth is just this portrait of devotion. And then we get her, her um, speech that most people are familiar with that's in verses 16 through 18. So let's read that together. Ruth 1, verses 16 through 18. 
It says, but Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me ever so severely if even death separates you and me. I love that this is often read in marriage ceremonies. Because I want to be like, you know she was saying that to her mother-in-law, right? <laughs> but it convinces Naomi. She's like, okay, I get it. Like, you're, you are serious about this. You're serious about this. So they go on to Bethlehem together. Chapter 2. We'll call this a portrait of kindness. Ruth and Naomi arrive back in Bethlehem. And it's just as the barley harvest begins. And they are destitute. They have nothing. And so Ruth offers to go and glean in one of the fields. She's like, I will find the right field and I will glean there. Well, the reason why that was possible is because in, according to Hebraic law, there was something called peah. And what this meant was, is that if you were a landholder, if you were an agriculturalist, then you were supposed to leave a portion of your crops for the poor and for the foreigner, for the widow to come and to be able to glean out of your field. So there was no maximum on how much of the edge of the field you left or how much you left in the orchard, but there was a minimum. It had to be at least one sixtieth of your crop. And so they knew there was going to be somewhere that they could go and they could get grain. So Ruth goes to the fields, and she just so happens, it says by chance, which if you read that in scripture, often is a way of the writer saying, this was actually God doing this. So by chance, Ruth ends up in a relative's field, Boaz. So Boaz comes to his field, and he sees this new person gleaning, and he asks the overseer, he's like, who does she belong to? And so the overseer has nothing but really great things to report. He says, she's modest. Literally, she doesn't bend over to pick up grain and show off like some women do. Instead, she bends down very delicately. <laughs> and I'm like, that, that seems like a lot of extra effort there, Ruth. <laughs> So she doesn't bend over like the other girls. She's hardworking. The overseer says she hardly ever takes a break. Hardly ever. She's so hardworking. And she's kind. Everyone has heard about how she takes care of her mother-in-law, Naomi. And then that kindness, that said, does its work. And, and Boaz catches it. And he's like, man, she's been so kind. I want to be kind to her. And so he goes to her, and he goes so far beyond anything required by this law of Piaf. He's like, hey, only glean in my field. I'm going to tell all of my workers that they can't harass you. And you get to drink the water that those workers have pulled, so you don't even have to go get your own water. And Ruth is just overwhelmed. She's like, oh, gosh, Boaz, you've comforted me so deeply in my sorrow. Thank you. What, why would you do that for me, a foreigner? And then... We kind of are going to take a pause right here because what the writer is pointing out, he's like, Boaz is doing that thing we heard about in Leviticus 19 where you treat the foreigner as your own. You love them as your own. Nudge, nudge, Ezra and Nehemiah. So then after Ruth says that, Boaz goes even further. He says, hey, come and have lunch with me. And he gives her so much lunch that she can't even eat it all. She takes him home to Naomi. He tells his workers, hey, even out of the stocks that you've already gathered, give her extra grain, like intentionally drop it. So she goes home with this massive amount of grain, this food for them to have dinner that night. And Naomi is like, hmm, I think I have an idea. So fast forward to harvest and we get to chapter three. So um, we'll call this, to be nice, we'll call this the portrait of acceptance. But this is actually where things get a little provocative. So Naomi tells Ruth, 
you know, I still want a home for you. I still want a spouse for, well, she doesn't say spouse. She says, I want a home for you. I want to secure your future. So what I need you to do is go take a bath, put on perfume, get really dolled up, and not in those widow clothes you've been wearing. Like, get super cute, and then you are going to sneak down to the field. And Boaz after he's had a lot to eat and a lot to drink, is going to go and he's going to lay down apart from everybody else because he's the landowner and he's not going to sleep with the peasants, I guess. So she's like, pay attention to where he lays down. And when he's laying down, then I want you to go and I want you to uncover his feet and lay down next to him and see what he tells you to do. Now, you are laughing because this is intended to be funny in the way that it was written. There is a lot of, uh, of conversation around just how illicit things got that night. If you want to read Ruth in this way, there is a ton of innuendo. And you're like, what did Naomi send her to do? Most scholars agree that even though it wasn't um, quite proper for Ruth to approach Boaz in this way, that nothing untoward actually happened that night. So, <laughs> some people are like, no, I like the other story way better. <laughs> but my favorite part of the story is like, so Ruth, she pulls back and covers his feet. She lays down there. And then you get to this part in chapter 3 where it talks about how she startles him. And he wakes up and he's like, who is here? And she tells him, it's me. But instead of doing what Naomi told her to do, which is see what he asks you to do, not Ruth proposes. She's like, hey, you remember that time when you said that you wanted God to like create security for me and, and put his wings over me? How about you put your wings over me? And you give me security. And it's not like just straight out, hey, marry me, but it's close enough. And then Boaz responds with this very enthusiastic yes. I mean, it's like Boaz's longest speech. It's very enthusiastic. So whenever I was reading this story for many years, in my mind, I saw Boaz as like the eligible bachelor. I mean, he's like the hottest guy in town. Everybody wants to marry Boaz. But if you actually read the story, Boaz is old. Rabbinic tradition says he was 80. Which, if the face app has taught us anything this week, <laughs> it's that men age pretty well. <laughs> Some of, okay. Girls, ladies, how many of you did this app this week and you were like, oh my, no. This is the trick. You have to find the picture where you have the most makeup on. And then you do it and you turn out kind of okay. Otherwise, it just looks like your face is melting off of you. The guys do it and they're like, oh, my future is glorious. <laughs> I do totally develop that app. Totally a dude. So the other thing that's interesting to note is most people assume that Boaz noticed Ruth because she was beautiful. She was this exotic Moabitess woman that stood out from everybody. <sighs> Women have other qualities. Whenever I was in college, we poor, this one poor guy, somehow me and some of my friends convinced him to play the game personality or looks. He was, I, I, this was not a good thing for us to convince him to do. And we were like, so if you had to choose one, would it be personality or looks for each of us? And he did it. <laughs> we were like, ooh, that, that we shouldn't have asked and you should not have obliged. <laughs> but Ruth was kind, she may have been beautiful, but what she was noticed for is her virtue. Every time Ruth is praised in this story, it is for her virtue. Her character, her kindness is being praised. When Boaz is giving this long, enthusiastic speech, he doesn't talk about how beautiful she is. He calls her a woman of valor, which Proverbs 21 translates, or 31 translates in a different way. But 
It's the same word there. It talks about, you know, what kind of woman? Well, literally, Boaz finds his Proverbs 31 woman. And then we get to chapter 4. And we'll call this a portrait of providence or, or maybe even a portrait of transformation. Boaz is like, I found my woman. There's just one little issue that we've got to navigate. You have this other kinsman redeemer who has a better right to you, which if I explained what that meant, we would go far afield from our purposes today. So I'm going to just sidestep that one. You can ask me about it later if you're interested. There's this man. He has a better claim to you and to Naomi. And so I'm going to go to the gate of the city, and I'm going to talk with the leaders, and we're going to get this taken care of. So he goes to the leaders of the city, and apparently Boaz was a pretty influential man because he literally like went and it says he took the leaders of the city and brought them to the city gate. So he's 80, he's influential, it's not a bad catch. So he gets all of these people there, he calls the kinsman redeemer who has the better claim, and he starts talking to him about Naomi's land and how she's ready to sell it, and the guy's like, yes, I would like to redeem that land, I will purchase it. And Boaz says, but wait a second, um, there's this Moabitess who comes with the land. And then the kinsman redeemer is like, well, nobody mentioned the Moabitess woman. I don't want that. And so it's the only time in the story that Boaz refers to Ruth as a Moabitess. So you know this is like a strategic play on his part. So the kinsman redeemer says, well, then you redeem it and her. And Boaz says, thank you, I will. So Boaz declares his intention to marry Ruth in front of everyone in the city, and they live happily ever after. But the point of the story comes at the very end. Because what happens is it says at the very end, and God, this is the Hebrew version, God gave pregnancy to Ruth. There's a very direct connection between the child that she will have, this child that that Genesis, or not Genesis, but Deuteronomy and some of those other books would have called, you know, a forbidden child, not even able to enter the congregation of the people of God. This child is born, his name is Obed. And then Obed becomes the father to Jesse. And Jesse becomes the father to David. And David, as we have said, is the greatest king of all Israel. Can you imagine how Ezra and Nehemiah felt about this book? The pot that this book would have stirred in that post-exilic Israel. Because against the majority opinion, he's saying, these people belong. They really do belong in the house of God. There should be a place in our heart because the, the story of Ruth is a story of this Moabitess woman coming in and from her kindness, the entire community is transformed. Boaz becomes a more kind person. Naomi goes from telling everybody in the beginning, call me Mara, call me bitter, to at the end, her arms being full and the women of Bethlehem saying to her, your daughter-in-law is better than seven sons which no one said that about daughters back then. So you've got this transformation that happens because Boaz and Naomi and the house of Bethlehem was willing to include this foreign Moabite woman. They said, this is what it really means to be the people of God, to show that kind of kindness, that loving kindness, that openness. So... It's hard for me to share the story of Ruth. I debated, but I can't not do this. And talk just tiny for a moment, because I know some people are going to be uncomfortable with me doing this, about the movement within our own country that we've seen over the last several weeks and the attitude that at time has been displayed towards immigrants and people who aren't even immigrants, people who are American citizens but a part of our country. And it grieves me a little bit, a lot, because as people who are a part of the people of God, we can, we can all think differently around like what immigration policies need to be and how that all needs to work. And I have nothing to say about immigration policy today. 
What I want to say is that our heart towards the people who are from other countries and nations, the immigrant, the refugee, Scripture has a very clear directive in terms of what our heart towards people should be. The foreigner residing among us we must treat as our native-born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. We could easily say we were all foreigners here in America. I know my family emigrated. And so I think it's worth it for us to be a little cautious and to be willing to engage in this area and go, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, we can, we can completely have different opinions on how immigration policy needs to work out, but we also are going to speak to when, it is, when things in our country are clearly racist and wrong. And I don't want us as a community to be afraid to have that conversation. So thank you for giving me space to say that. I just couldn't not do that in the context of Ruth and this week. <laughs> but the reality that we have to come back to is God calls us to loving kindness, to said, treat people as we have been treated. So I want to offer in our, our last bit of time together two questions that I wrestled with this week as I read the book of Ruth. And the first one is this. When you read the story of Ruth, you have to ask the question, who has God given me to love? Who has God given me to love? And this was the question that was facing the Israelite people post-exile. And the book of Ruth offered a very different option than that forwarded by Ezra and Nehemiah. And we actually see that by Jesus' day, people were still struggling with this question. Turn to Luke 10 for me. I'm going to read, starting in verse 25. It says, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Does that sound familiar? Maybe a little Leviticus 19 making its way into Jesus' speech there. Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, and so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus goes on, and he tells the story of the Good Samaritan, right? Tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And how you have these religious people who pass by, and then you have the Samaritan who was the person, the people group of Jesus' day that the Jews really disliked the most. And the Samaritan ends up being the hero of the story. In this time, people were still wrestling with what do we do with the foreigner? Who do we get to exclude? And who has to belong? Who is my neighbor? And Jesus' response is love the foreigner, the one that is the hardest for you to love, the one that you hold the most prejudice in your heart, that is what has said requires of us. Matthew 5, 43. Jesus is teaching. He says, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. This is that same conversation they were having in Ezra and Nehemiah. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute that you, that they may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you only greet your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Who has God given us to love? When Jesus said love, what idea do you think came to the minds of those listening? Hesed. Loving kindness, an active kind of love. Jesus was not cool with people who were like, I love my neighbor. Uh, do you? Well, let me see. What are you doing? How are you being kind? Show me that. And then we can decide whether you're actually loving your neighbor or not. 
Who is your neighbor? Is it the person that you have the hardest time loving? Because that's who I'm asking you to love. The person you have the most prejudice in your heart? I like to remind people sometimes that the tax collectors were actually the chief extortionists because that's uncomfortable. You know, we're like, oh, we're all for Jesus loving the sinner and the prostitute and the drunkards, but the chief extortionists? Ah, now I'm getting uncomfortable. But that's the thing about this kind of love is it's inconvenient, it requires something, it's an invitation to change. Love will not let us stay the same. It won't. You get into a relationship with someone that you have prejudice in your heart towards and you see what happens. I guarantee you it's going to affect your theology a little bit. It's going to affect our attitudes a little bit. Jesus knew that. That's why he said real love, it's relational. It doesn't stand from afar and go, I love you. It gets real close and says, I want to be a part of your life. And let's see what faith looks like now. This is what Jesus is calling his people to. The second question in the story of Ruth, what is mine to do? What is mine to do? I love as you read Ruth, you, there's this pattern, and maybe you picked up on it. And what it teaches us is God expects us to do our part in repairing the world, but the pattern is this. You have someone who prays for something for another person. So Naomi is leaving with Ruth, and she's going, I want God to bless you with security and a spouse. And that happens in chapter 1, verse 9. And then in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, Naomi actually begins to act and lead Ruth towards that by guiding her in, in towards security and toward a spouse. You have Boaz, who in chapter 2, verse 12 says, I wish God's covering his protection for you. And then in chapter 3, Boaz himself becomes that covering and that protection. You see this pattern where God stirs up these things in our hearts that we want good for others and good in this world, and that doesn't, that's not enough. That's not said. What, what is transformative is when we go, man, there's this good I want for another. There's this good I want in the world. And then we walk that out. And we become agents who are doing God's work. We are saying, I want that blessing for that person. I want this for them. And I'm going to step into that space and be the arms and hands of God extended in that. That changes a lot about how we do faith. It's not just well-wishing for others. It's not just, I know you're sick and I'm going to pray for you. It's, hey, I'm going to bring you a mill and we're going to gather around you and you're not going to do this by yourself. I could go on and on and on. But what is yours to do? How is God inviting you to show up in this world? I love that this, this idea is in a book where this, this Hebraic idea of Pia was really emphasized. Because this type of ritualizing margin in your life. I think the reason a lot of us, our faith doesn't have works, which according to scripture says it's kind of dead, is because we have no margin in our lives. We're like, I don't have time to do good for others. Well, maybe the good you're supposed to be doing is right there in the busyness of your life. What I love is when I read the Gospels, almost every miracle Jesus performs, a huge percentage of them, is he's walking from one place to another, and there's this interruption, and someone is healed. We could have really grand, lofty ideas of how it looks to be people of Hesed. Or we can open our eyes and go, how do I create enough margin in my life where I'm aware of God's loving kindness that I tell you all the time, you are always in his loving presence. How do I become that loving presence to others? So that my coworkers are experiencing said, and my neighbors are experiencing said, And when I'm interacting with someone here at Life in Deep Bellum, they're experiencing said. How do I quit waiting for there to be enough space in my life to do these big, grand gestures and just go, what God wants me to do, I can do here and now if my heart can just be awake to it. 
Boaz was just going through his life. Naomi was just going through her life. Ruth, this is, everybody here is very normal. Very normal. And that's why I love where we started with this. The commentator who said that the Ruth is a tell of how ordinary people with mixed motives become extraordinary through the cultivation of loving kindness. Jesus said, if you want people to know that you are mine, if you want people to know that this faith is the real deal, has said, loving kindness, everywhere, every day, create the margin for that in our lives. Going back to the historical context of Ruth for a second, there is a um, a Jewish festival called Shavuot or Shavuot and it's one of the five major Jewish festivals and it celebrates the giving of the law and do you know what book is read at that festival? The book of Ruth the book that says the Moabites belong you might say Hesed wins. And that association, that happened not too long after the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. My guess is people saw the fallout from what it looks like when entire peoples are excluded from the people of God. When I was reading Ruth, I also was struck by how often I came back to the cross. If there is any example of Hesed that we should take note of, it is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, think about it. This act, this unmerited act, it has set off this grace that we receive, this loving kindness, it has set off like this chain of goodness that just keeps adding more and more good to the world generation after generation. At least that's my hope. Is that Christians would be the kind of people that it could be said of us, that because we follow Jesus, we're always adding more and more good to this world. More and more good more and more good because that's what the cross did it opened us up it it brought God's love into the world in such a concrete way and so my invitation to you as we close this morning is this week wrestle with scripture wrestle with those questions who has been given to you to love and what has been given to you to do Lord, I thank you that you, you come to us in our lives in specific and concrete ways. And Lord, just open our hearts to truly love, not just with this attitude that thinks about it, but with a life that walks it out, willing to lay our lives down for others, Christ, just as you laid your life down for us. Let that said that we have experienced transform us so that we can add more and more and more good to this world. So that people will know that you are truly God. And so that people will know that they are truly loved by God. And I ask this in your name, Jesus. And all God's people say, Amen.